Good morning, everyone. I want to thank everybody for being here this morning. Appreciate you being here and uh, interacting with the class. Really do, really do enjoy all that. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 19. Let's see, we didn't get very far, so we'll pick up from uh, verse 6 here in a, <clears throat> in a few minutes. If you will, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you and praise you for your word, for the Bible that you've given us, Father, that we can know about you, know what you desire of us and what you desire for us, Father. We thank you and praise you for that. We we ask, Father, that you would lead us and guide us in this study and help us to learn what you want us to know, that we would be able to grow closer to you and become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We thank you for him and for the sacrifice he made for us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's see. Let's, uh, let's start with Revelation chapter 19. Uh, verses 6 through 10, you'll notice our picture here. Now, our picture here, uh, our image is this is Christ, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords on the white horse. And if you can see it, it might be a little hard to see. Let me point this out. This is the sword from his mouth, just like in, I think we had seen in a previous picture. Or maybe we looked at this picture before. But that is the sword, which we know the sword is the Word of God, the Bible, right? Could you see that when I zoomed that in? Yeah? Okay, I wasn't sure if, if everybody was agreeing with that or not, but okay. So let's read verses 6 through 10, chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we looked at question seven, and we were ready to look at question eight. Now, Question eight, in what was the lamb's bride adorned or clothed? That's it. Yes, man. White clothes representing holiness and the act of righteous acts of the saints. Right. Fine linen, uh, clean and bright. And you'll notice, and I was going to say, and, and Matt went on to say, um, I was going to ask, what is the, the fine and clean linen? And it's the righteous acts. You'll notice that is the righteous righteous acts or deeds of the saints. Now, a lot of times, you know, well, what's another word for righteous acts or deeds, the way we speak a lot of times? What do we call that? Good works, right? We call it works, and that's, that's true. We do. 
And uh, I think works gets a bad rap because we associate working with earning something. Like we're earning our salvation, right? So I think works kind of gets a bad rap for that. But here it's called righteous acts, or we could think of them as faithful actions or faithful deeds, which is, I think, more correct. Because you'll notice it's not faith or belief or trust, but it's our faithful actions that gives us this robe. That's what this robe is. It's our faithful actions. Now, why our actions? Yes, man. Go to James, faith without works is dead, right? Right. You go to James, faith without works is dead. It's no faith. If, if you say you believe in something, but you make no action, you take no action upon it, do you really believe? And I, I would say no. I'd say no, you don't. So... So what actions, you know, should we be taking that would be righteous? What are these actions that we would consider righteous? And this is this is a very open-ended question, so I'm not trying to be, you know, a smart aleck or anything with you. <laughs> Just so you know, yes, Matt. Just thinking of James off the top of my head, I think something like pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows, to help help the needy instead of just saying be warm and filled, actually help. Right. Righteous acts, right? That's, that's very good. Pure and, and undefiled religion is to actually help those in need, not just say, oh, you know, be warm and be filled, but actually to do something to follow up and help someone and do something for them, right? To actually look after others. And, and you can look at it. I, I felt like a good example was looking at like the fruits of the spirit, um, which encourage us, you know, to have love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, caring for others and honesty and integrity and loyalty to God, all those things. So those, those would be that. And, and remember that our actions are the results of our salvation. It's not the other way around. Our salvation is not the result of our actions because Jesus bought our salvation for us. So, but these good deeds that we do are in response to the love that Jesus and God have given us. And we just want to share that with others. So I just wanted to make sure we were clear on that. I thought that was an important point to, to see in the, in the verse there, what that clean linen and clothing is. So does anybody have anything else on that before we move to the next question? All right. So question nine, what was John told? We'll say, well, if you look in the, uh, in verse nine, John was told to write, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And then he's also told these are the true sayings of God. And you might remember parables, and I, I'm going to mention one here to come coming up uh, that Jesus gave about this. Um, if we look at question 10, as John fell down to worship the one who spoke to him, what was he told? Yeah, Matt. Don't do it. Yeah, don't do that, right? Yes, he says, don't do that. Worship God. He says, I'm just your fellow servant. Uh and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. So he also says that for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So I want to look at 
kind of all of this here. Why, why would John fall down to worship at that moment? Just, and it's just, again, it's just a thought, just an open-ended thing. Yes, Matt? Well, you see this, this angel, this glorious heavenly being, that would, that would amaze us. <laughs> yeah. And it's confusing for, I mean, for him, for us to see that, but clearly there's a distinction between angel and God, but if you're just sort of seeing this heavenly vision, it would be glorious. Right. For us, it could be confuse, confusing. If we actually saw this angel, like, like Matt's talking about, it could be confusing to see that angel. And we, we've not even, I mean, I've not, maybe I shouldn't speak for everybody. I've not seen that type of glory. I've not seen that. So if I saw that, I might mistake that and think that that was God, right? It'd be an easy mistake to make. Now, now John has been dealing with this in this vision. And it also made me think that perhaps it reminded him of this parable that Jesus gives of the, the wedding feast back in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And this is where uh, Jesus is talking, you know, is teaching them in this parable. I'm going to read. I'm going to read this because I think it's I think it's just a thought because we're talking about the marriage of the bride with Christ, right? And this parable relates to that. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Some of that kind of reminded me of what we're looking at in Revelation. Anyway, uh, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. And I, I felt like this went along with what we're talking about, being clothed in those garments, having those righteous deeds as our clothing. And, uh, and then the wedding and everyone being invited, but so many will not will not answer that call. And I also think it's interesting that um, the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all of whom they found both bad and good. God calls everyone. And yeah, some of us have been really bad before we're called, right? I mean, that's that's the way of, of people. So just something to, it was just more to think about. And I thought, uh, I thought that might relate, and maybe John thought of that, and maybe at that time that had an impression on him too. 
And you can also possibly relate this to the parable of the Great Supper in Luke chapter 14. But I had to choose one. And this was about the wedding, so I felt like that was better. So, uh, You'll notice, too, the, the last thing the angel says for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the testimony of Christ, and it is prophetic in nature, right? Because we're saying he's coming back, right? He's not now, but he's coming back. He could be any time. And so we're all prophets when we share this testimony of Jesus. Um, and a biblical prophecy tends to do two things. It tells the future, good or bad, as we see, you know, and uh, perhaps it warns or encourages obedience to God. Well, I think it does encourage obedience to God, but, but sometimes it also warns. So, all right. So when we're sharing the testimony of Jesus, we're sharing the prophecy, both good and bad, because we're also warning of that destruction for those who are not heeding, right? Does anybody have anything on that before we look at the next verses? Yes, Rachel. Um, to also go back to that other question, why do you think that John had that reaction to fall down as the angels speak to worship him? Um, it could be because so far, I think, all these visions, he's been recording what people, these beings have been doing and saying, but the angel said to John, like, he's he's actually receiving direct communication as far as, like, write this. Right. Like, that, like, like the angel was turning his attention to John personally. Right, and he's commanding him personally. That's a good point. So that, that the fact that he has turned his attention personally to John and he's telling him specifically to do this, and that might also have given John the implication again with all that glory and everything that... That could have been somewhat confusing, and he thought he should worship, you know. So, yeah, that's a good point, because he did. He was turning directly to him and speaking directly to him. Um, all right, so if we look at Revelation chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now we have a very open-ended question here, or at least it asks for a lot, because a lot of these verses are... It's list the descriptive features of the one sitting on a white horse. So if you have any comment you wish to make about any of these features, yes, Matt? I just say, look at the picture we have up here. It's really nice. It, does, it tries to illustrate a lot of the, the things we just read, the fiery eyes and all this different stuff. Right, and if you look, I just realized, uh, cut that out. Um, if you notice in the background here, I'm trying to show it 
His army is behind him in all white. Can you see those horses and things? So, just I just wanted to point that out. They did do a pretty good job. Does he have the crowns? The crown, if you look closely here, you can see the crowns. Yes, you're right. They're stacked crowns. They are. That, that's a good. Stacked crowns. Still got the white hair, the glowing eyes, the sword coming out of his mouth. Yes. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yes. If you'll notice here, this is saying King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let's look down. I did not look on the thigh, but yes, down here on the thigh, they've, they've, and they've tried to add a lot in here. So, and I'm glad you noticed that. And they've added that. Now, if you'll remember, and this, this just popped into my head in the Old Testament, they used to make a promise. And remember, they would put their hand under their thigh and they would make a promise. So this is, this is showing an, an authority to me of like the promises that he's given us and it's, and that we have, you know, we have sworn to follow him too. There's, I think there's kind of a relationship there, uh, to swearing fealty to God and to the Lord and that he, he is that one. Notice too, he's got nail scarred hands. I just saw that. Do you see that right there? It's not in our text, but the artists include it in the picture. So that was, that was good. So we have all these features. Uh, the answer to the question is he was called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. Um, because he, he will be our judge and we're going to see that further, further down too. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. We see, see that. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, there can be some debate and stuff about that. Um, no one seems to be really sure of it, and it could be as simple as just being a true revelation of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, or it could be something else. Uh, you know, some cultures have ideas about knowing knowing someone's name gives you power or something over them. I I don't really get into any of that. I believe I believe it's really simply representative of the fact that he really is Yahweh. He is our God in the flesh. And and that's part of the mystery of Christ, and people have a hard time understanding that. Do you have something, Matt? I think the crown here, some translations will say diadems, just indicate there's different kind of crowns sometimes. Yeah. Stephanus crowns. Like yes. Victory. I think this is a royal ruling crown. He's a king of kings. Right, that's true. This is a royal ruling crown. It is not the, the, the necessarily the crown. But he is the ruler and he is victorious, but still it's not the same as we get a victorious crown for overcoming. So there is, for some reason, there's some distinction in that and in the, in the, uh, the way that's mentioned in the Greek, so, or described. So, um, Let's see. So yeah, he had many, his eyes are like a flame of fire, many crowns. Um, oh yeah, we were talking about the name. So let's see. Oh, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And people seem to think there are two ways to look at this. I, I really think it's it has to do with his atoning blood. But, uh, but some people seem to mention or think that it had to do with the blood of his enemies. But I really think it has more to do with his atoning blood, the fact that he shed his blood for us. 
but <coughs> I guess I, I agree with you. I think about the power of this blood and what it's able to accomplish. Right. Right, and we, we don't really see that here except his robe is red, so maybe that's supposed to represent that. Just I'll just mention that as far as in the picture. Um, his name is called the Word of God, right? So we know that from the Gospel of John, that, that he is the Word of God. Um, let's see, he's followed by the armies of heaven, clothed in white linen and on white horses. Now, looking back at the verses we read before, yes, Shirley? I'm assuming it is since it's mentioned separately, but I mean, all of this, I think in a way, this this name that no one knows except himself, I, I think that's just part of that revelation of Jesus. And um, But it is mentioned separately, so I assume that that is different from that. I believe it's just part of that mystery where he is Yahweh, he's Emmanuel, he's God in the flesh with us, all of those things. Um, okay, so his army, you'll notice their description is similar to what we've seen before, right, as far as the white linen, they're, now they're on white horses, so it would just be... I was thinking this would be the saints, but could it be the angels? Could it be the saints? Could it be both? But I was thinking I was leaning more towards the saints because of the white linen robes and all that. You know, his army. We we are basically his army was, was the impression or the idea. Um, okay, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, which he should strike the nations, which, you know, what's this sword? This is... The word of God, right? So I don't think that's anything at this point in our study. I don't think that's anything surprising. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God. Again, that payment for sin, if we don't accept his payment for sin, then there's going to be wrath and judgment to come that is going to make us pay for our sin. And then we said on his robe and his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And is there any doubt about who this is? Okay, so I didn't think so either. This is this is Jesus. He he's our King, our Judge. He's our victorious champion. He's our lawgiver. He's our example. He's our teacher. He executes God's wrath. He does all of this and and more than we can name. Yes. Right. That that is interesting that John John has this vision and then he does refer back to his gospel about Jesus being the Word of God, right? Yeah. If we were confused, we can go back and read John one. Yeah, if you were confused for any reason, you could do that. I think there's I think there's other things as well, but definitely those things.
that that makes it very clear who John is talking about. So. Does anybody have anything else on that? I just want to make one comment. Yes. Uh, it popped up in my head. Um, in verse 16, where it's saying, On his thigh a name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I had a person tell, a uh, person relate to me that because of this scripture, and they were just saying someone had spoken to them, and they passed it on to me. Because of this scripture, of this name written on his thigh, um, I don't want to say this, because of people putting all these sayings and tattoos on them. Mm. They was justifying themselves by doing all of this to their body. Oh, oh, well, okay, so people were telling you because he had this on his thigh, they were using that to justify tattooing their bodies and stuff, and right? that's okay or not okay, but I have my okay. own thoughts on tattoos, well, and I won't discuss it. Well, no, it's okay, since you brought it up, I mean, my, my thing on tattoos is this. Before you come to the Lord, let's just say you're covered in tattoos. When you come to the Lord and you get forgiveness, you've got forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you look like or what you did before. Now, I personally, I don't have any tattoos. I don't really care anything about tattoos. I never saw one that inspired me to do anything. But I think as a Christian, we really should not be tattooing ourselves, scarring ourselves, maiming ourselves because of the Word of God, even back early on where he says not to be doing that. Don't be following the practices of these other uh, people who worship other gods, because that's where those practices come from, except some of them, too, also relate to slavery, such as, and I'm going to say this, but don't get offended at me, but piercing your ear really was a sign of being enslaved back in the Old Testament, right? So, I mean, just, you know, so piercings and things like that really are not necessarily good things we should be doing. However, if you pierce your ears, that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying just we need to understand the origin. I huh? found that kind of interesting what that person said. Yes. People, people will use all kinds of things to justify their actions. But, but you can come to Christ and be a Christian, and let's say you're, you're, you're just starting, right? You may still do some of those old practices and things that you did in the past, not knowing that they're wrong. And then later you may learn that they're wrong and then you stop doing them. That too is a part of being a Christian, right? I don't know everything the minute I'm baptized. Or I didn't anyway. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe some people do, but I didn't. So um, so we learn and we, we grow over time. So, so there's going to be people who have tattoos and our Christians are absolutely valid Christians, right? And then there's there's going to be others that aren't. That's just the way it is. Because I'm not saying, and, and you can't go back and, but it's like, kind of like you can't go back and undo your sin. Tattoos are very hard to undo. So it's very difficult. So Okay, so I guess we did get off a little bit, sorry. But off topic a little bit. But that's, see, that's a good topic, though, to talk about and mention. And this, I don't think this is being done as like this is a tattoo, I really think it relates more back to those 
those promises and oaths that people would make, and it's a sign of authority and that we have promised and ourselves to him. That's how I'm thinking of it, because that's what they used to do. Yes? Well, you take this whole image, even that we can see in this, in this depiction here, I mean, it's, it's symbolic. Like, he doesn't literally have a, a sword shooting out of his mouth. As, as you pointed out, it's, it's representative of the idea yes. that his words are judging us. So I don't think we're to understand that he literally has this. But that's just labeling him. He's saying he's king of kings. Right, right, and that, that's true. This is this is a not a literal image because uh, we know that the sword really represents the Word of God, the Bible, even if you want to say it that way. Um, and we know that this is a representation of Jesus, but not a literal, not literally necessarily how he will look. Now he may look similar in some ways. There may be some things we know when he showed himself. He still had the the holes in his hands, right, the scars. So. Um, so, anyway, let's read uh, verses 11 through 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written, wait, did we read this already? Yeah. I'm so sorry. I did not go far enough, did I? I'm like, wait. Okay, now, that was right. Okay. So, I should have another picture here. Give me just a second. All right. So we have, we have another picture here. And this is the beast and the false prophet into being thrown into the lake of fire. And, and remember, this is an artist's representation, okay? So, um... Now we'll read verses 17 through 21, which are the correct verses. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is that, I guess, that final battle for these two. Um, what did... An angel, we'll look at question 12. What did an angel standing in the sun say to the birds? Right, come and gather to the great for the great supper. Now this is this is not a supper like we think like we think of like the other. If you want to contrast this, this is nothing like the banquet of the marriage or the wedding feast. This is to us, this is kind of horrible, right? It's kind of horrible and grotesque when I when I read this. Um, 
that you may, and, and he, he tells them that you may eat the flesh of mighty men, horses, those who sit on them, all people, uh, both small and great, all these, all these folks. And uh, if we look at Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4, there's a similar, this is just something that, that kind of harkens to this a little bit. You shall fall, and he's, God was speaking against Gog in this, and Gog is going to come up again. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So I thought that was interesting. Like I said, we're going to hear, we're going to see a ref another reference to Gog and Magog later. Um, if we look at uh, verse 13, what did John see next? War broke out. Right. So he sees the, the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who sat on the white horse, Jesus, and his army. And if we look at, let's go ahead and move to the next question. What happened to the beast and the false prophet? Right, they were captured and cast alive into the lake of fire. What do we call this lake of fire or what's, you know, what's some other things that we call this? Yes, ma'am. Hell or perdition or destruction. Hell, perdition, destruction, right? Yeah. The, we, call it, we call it these things. We call it uh, everlasting punishment, the second death. We have a lot of ways that we describe this. Um, so here you say why, I mean, here, here was another question I had when I, when I was looking at this again. Why are only the beast and false prophet thrown in? It's just a, kind of an open question. You may have your own idea. Yes. Well, I think as we continue to go through the book, there's, there's more that get thrown in. So I don't know if it's sort of <laughs> progressive, like here's the first fruits of the destruction, the leaders yeah. of this. Yeah, you're. I think you're thinking kind of. That's that's kind of what I was thinking too. Was like, well, there's there's an order to this that's going to go on to who gets thrown into the lake of fire, and we're going to see that order. And if you'll notice that uh, they're they're the only ones that are thrown in. They deceived the rest of those people, and all men are going to be judged really at the same time together in the judgment, right? So those those other people, it's just not their time to be to be judged and go through the judgment. And like, like Matt was saying, we'll see others being cast into the lake of fire further on in. So let's, um, oh, and you'll notice this is, this is two parts of Satan's unholy, false trinity. This is, this is two parts of it gone that fast, that quick. So, um, let's see. Let's look at the last question here for this chapter. Uh, chap, chap, um, question 15. What happened to the rest of their armies? Because they had all these armies of people with them, right? Well, what? The, Jesus killed them with the sword, and then the birds soared on them. 
Right. They were killed by the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of Christ, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, I was, again, thinking about this, and this is kind of a gross thing in a way. We, we talked about that. This is not our usual idea of, of Christ and the Word of God, right? We don't normally think of him in that way. But here, Jesus kills his enemies with the Word of God. And we, we yes, man. Well, it's like the, the two comings of Christ. A lot of times when we read about that, you know, he came, Jesus came to save people, right? Yeah. But he's coming again. <laughs> yep. He's coming again, not to save people again, because he did that. He's coming again for judgment. That's, that's what this is about. Right. And that's the difference. That's the difference. This second coming of Christ, this is a coming of judgment. Yes. Right. Right. He's 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 coming back. He's not playing. This is this is the time. All opportunities are pretty much over at this point. Um, he's going to tread that wine press of wrath, like you mentioned. And we know that if we do not accept Christ, then then we're going to be caught up in that wrath. That's. Right. There's nowhere to escape from the Lord. Right. Right. Yeah, this is and this is it. He's coming and this you can see we're warned about this all throughout the Bible. But I, I chose just a couple of short passages because we're warned about this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse nine, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to the to to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. And then in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, and this is, this is just an excerpt out of what Paul is saying, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, meaning you're unrepentant, you, you do not uh, come to the Lord and repent, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we're warned about this all throughout the Bible, and that's that's part of the message sometimes we don't like to talk about, I know, but because we do see Jesus and God through the eyes of love, but there's a there's a time, there's a time when there will be there will be wrath and punishment as well. The last part of uh, verse twenty though it, it says that those Right. Their army, you're right, the, their army, if you notice in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet, those people with them are those who they deceive into accepting the mark and worshiping his image. Right, right. That's a good point. These are those people who who are uh, deceived. That's their army. Their army are all those people we, we don't save. You can look at it that way. Anybody we don't save, unfortunately, is going to end up in that. 
And that's that's a uh, that's another sobering thought. And we need to we need to remember that we don't want people to be in that army on that side and face that destruction. We are well out of time. I want to thank you for your time and your attention this morning. Appreciate it.